You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst and Renew Economy contributor. David, how are you? Giles, I'm uh, well in the face of all the bushfires we've had here and I trust all our listeners are are taking an ongoing interest in uh, what's happening in renewable energy and other relevant topics. And we've got a great special guest this evening. Yes, we do. You do. Yeah, just look uh, on the bushfires. I've actually um, got my two cars packed with all the uh, all the possessions for a quick getaway, just in case the uh, fire comes down the mountain. I think the last I saw was about five or ten kilometres away, so um, um, a bit nerve wracking. But um, as you say, there's a few things happening in the energy markets, and look. One of the big debates is this sort of whole recasting of the um, rules of the national electricity market. And um, as you've mentioned in your uh, piece uh, today and also previously, the Energy Security Board is looking at a complete and a complete rewrite. We've had all sorts of discussions about various market incentives, frequency and ancillary control, marginal loss factors and all those sorts of things. And Europe often gets cited as a potential example of what to do and occasionally what not to do. And that's where we're going uh, in this episode. We're going to... um, Gerard Wynne is an energy analyst and commentator who has uh, deep knowledge of Europe. He's written about all sorts of different markets there and some of the mechanisms that are going on. So, Gerard Wynne, thanks for joining us on the Energy Insiders podcast. Hi there, you're absolutely welcome here. Good to be good to join you. I'm just wondering whether it is possible to sum up in a couple of brief sentences. We'll get into some of the details later on. Is the is the European energy market heading in the right direction, or have things been thrown in its path that's caused it to stumble along the way? Is it possible to sort of sum this up? I know it's a multiple markets and people doing different things, and there's nuclear in France and renewables and Germany and coal in Poland and goodness what else what elsewhere but can you just give us like an overall picture yeah um, sure of course Giles um, I think overall picture as you probably know um, European energy markets are heavily influenced by the European Union um, so uh, the European Union sets targets uh, for example for energy efficiency for uh, renewable Energy is a proportion of the energy mix, um, and um, uh, and, uh, and and so on. Uh, so uh, these targets are, have been, if you like, a kind of a, a guiding light, a beacon uh, for countries in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty thirty. Um, so some of these targets, for example, renewable energy targets are binding. Um, so you know, heavily influencing the energy policy of the member states of the European Union, the twenty-eight soon to be possibly twenty-seven countries. Uh, but I think broadly going in the right direction. But it, depending on what you call the right direction, uh, but certainly one of the massive influences on the energy market at the moment in across the European Union is the European Emissions Trading Scheme, um, which by setting a carbon price which has trebled or quadrupled in the last I don't know eighteen months. That has had a big impact on coal and lignite um, in, in Europe. 
uh, which is which is meaning you're having a bunch of countries in Europe now announcing coal phase outs alongside that higher carbon price, um, which which I think is the the big thing to watch. And what will replace coal? You know, whether that's gas or renewables. So, so Gerard, I, I was just looking up some stats quickly. And I think uh, at least in the six months ended June 30th, coal generation in Europe was down an incredible 19%. And I think the um, European carbon price is still trading at around 30 euros. But uh, I th- some people are talking about the carbon price will eventually... I mean, it's complicated because of the withdrawal of the UK or likely withdrawal of the UK. But putting that to, and they have to sell all their allowances in Europe before that happens. As, as and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but could you just uh, talk a little bit about what the next stage of the European carbon scheme is? Because I think they're moving to stage four, uh, um, which will have a, an even sharper emission allowed emissions reduction uh, trajectory uh, from about 2021. Is that or 20? Where are we there? Yeah, that's right. So you're absolutely right. So from 2021 to 2030 um, is the, uh, as you say, the stage four um, of the emissions trading scheme. Um, and under that, uh, under this stage four, as you say, um, there will be an annual decline in the number of emissions allowances um, allocated uh, to uh, the big um, industrial installations. I think there's about 12,000 or something like that. So this is, you know, obviously one of the important sectors imp- impacted is the power sector, but there are actually other sectors like cement, um, metal making and that kind of chemicals. Uh, but yeah, one of the big ones is power sec- is the power sector and the, uh, the number of allowances that are allocated to that uh, across the scheme uh, to all these um, um, installations uh, is reducing now from 2.2% annually um, compared with 1.7% annually before. Uh, so yes, that, that uh, would have an impact, a sharper reduction, as you say. Uh, possibly, a, we're still actually seeing um, um, the, the, uh, the impact of the rollout of something which has already happened, which is something called the Market Stability Reserve, uh, who, the goal of which was to remove a surplus of allowances that was um, effectively banked annually, going all the way back to the global financial crisis. Um, where you've got a big surplus because of the reduction in output um, in Europe, which uh, meant that the, the allowances that were already allocated um, uh, weren't used. And because of what's called banking mechanism, where you can take surpluses from one year to the next, uh, that built up to a massive surplus of, of allowances and a crash in the carbon price, um, which is now reversed because of this market stability reserve, uh, which is effectively taking out that surplus. And I understand that that stability reserve, they, they, they will actually increase. If coal plants are taken and are closed, then effectively there the um, stability reserve will be increased so as to basically keep the emissions... I mean, the basic policy is to keep the emissions market very tight and, and force further reductions. And I guess at €30 Euros, uh, uh, a carbon, and, and with, you know, that's in Australian dollar terms... Uh, call it $45 uh, before you even get to the coal price or anything like that. Look, I, I, I want to go on about this for a minute, but I just also yeah. wanted to cover a couple of other things. You mentioned other sectors as well. And I understand that in the uh, steel sector, for instance, they're talking about having a border tax in Europe now so that imported steel 
that has a lot of carbon will have to pay a higher price than, say, European steel that's made in a in, in a lower carbon uh, way. And then we could also talk, if you had any thoughts of, about uh, air travel and, and stuff like that. I mean, uh, this, the, Europe is generally, as I see it, uh, making quite a lot of moves in, in, in a very broad emissions reducing sort of capacity. Um, yes, that's right. Um, so the emissions trading scheme um, does impact these other sectors as well. Um, so you've um, uh, got worries about what's called carbon leakage, you know, um, which, as I'm sh- sure you understand, and many good listeners, uh, refers to the idea that um, it's it's all very well having tough emission standards or limits in Europe, but if if those if that just drives, let's say, cement manufacturers out of Europe to, let's say, China, um, well, the emissions are still happening globally. They're just happening now in China, who now exports the same cement or whatever it is uh, to Europe. Uh, Hence the idea of a carbon border tariff, um, which would take account of the carbon content of imported products uh, from countries which are not as uh, strict in terms of emissions limits as the European Union. But this has been talked about, I must say, for a long time. I remember um, the French President Jacques Chirac um, perhaps was the first to mention it or to raise this idea. The French have, have long been in favour of a uh, carbon border tariff, or at least um, French political leaders have long talked about it. No doubt that's related to the fact that they have like 70-80% nuclear power, so they are very low carbon as an economy. Um, but I'm not sure yet, David. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not up to date on the um, on the latest discussions on carbon. And I see it has been talked about by the incoming European Commission, who, as you know, are the executive in the European Union, um, very keen on big statements around carbon neutrality in the EU. Um, but whether or not a carbon border tariff came to pass, I think that would need unanimity across EU member states, and that's going to be hard. I'll hand I'll hand back to Charles in a second, but I just wanted to touch on what's replacing this kind of 19% coal reduction, which I understand is a a mixture of gas uh, and also um, wind and solar, particularly in Western Europe. That's on the one half. And then while we're talking about the wind and solar, I wondered on the residential side, um, uh, for some of our listeners will be interested, because I think Germany's again been leading the world in residential batteries and sort of supporting that system. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how much progress uh, has been made there. Like, is it, is, it a, is it a factor in the overall scheme or, or still just something you could point to uh, as a pretty picture? Yeah, sure. Um, well, um, if you look at Germany, um, yes. So, yes, you're right um, that uh, coal and ignite are coming off, which is unusual. Uh, you know, it's quite interesting in Germany uh, because... Uh, Lignite, as you know, this is brown coal, pit head coal plants typically. The power plant is on the site of the mine, so very low cost. So traditionally in Germany, um, they would have been right up there in the merit order in terms of you know high capacity factors coming online, running at very high um, high 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 factors. Um, so you would see them actually as quite a large proportion of the generation mix. Um, so looking at October 2018, I just checked this briefly a minute ago, uh, Lignite would have been 25 to 40% of the electricity mix in Germany uh, this time last year. This time, now with just a month gone by, October 2019, we're looking at 20 to 25%. Um, so it's come off a lot. And in fact, we've even seen Lignite power plants on standstill. So this summer in Europe, 
um, one utility, EMBW, said they'd actually taken offline a, 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 power, a lignite power plant, which is unprecedented in Europe, in Germany, sorry, uh, because, as I say, they're low cost. And this is, they stated, was because of low gas prices and high carbon prices. So um, uh, we've done a quick analysis on the, on the margins for lignite power plants in Germany, and they, they are actually not even break even at the moment. Uh, before you count for hedging. Um, so, yep, there's big issues. What's replacing it? Um, gas is, uh, is certainly in there. It depends on the country, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, renewables in Germany are, are huge, as you know, tens of gigawatts of both wind and solar power. Uh, <coughs> um, same story in other European countries. So, for example, in Poland, uh, we've done quite a bit of analysis. Um, but just looking at the half, first half of 2019, um, at the biggest utility, electric utility in Poland, it's called PGE. Uh, I noticed their carbon costs in the first half this year were up 183% compared with the same period in 2018. So basically nearly trebled their carbon costs. And those carbon costs are now more than equivalent to more than half of that company's EBITDA. 55% of EBITDA is their carbon cost, up from 17, 17% of EBITDA in the same period last year. So you can see the impact this is having the economics of utilities in Europe. Regarding to bat just turning to batteries very briefly, um, yes indeed, uh, Germany, um, big on batteries, big on rooftop solar. Um, so around 2 million systems, that's uh, rooftop solar systems in Germany as of uh, the end of last year. Um, I can see some data on batteries, more than 100,000, about 150,000 households and businesses have uh, these small-scale distributed batteries. Um, why is that? Well, there's a VAT benefit. I'm not sure if that's the same in Australia. Um, and also, I, I'm pretty confident you, this, you don't have this in Australia. Some countries now in Europe are allowing aggregators of batteries access to ancillary services markets. So, for example, Sonnen is a big battery manufacturer, passed an availability test last year. And now they are offering their residential consumers a share of that income. So this is helping the economics of batteries. Um, and it's the same actually in Britain. Uh, they also have this kind of what they call grid services income, uh, which is small, but, you know, it helps on the, um, on the uh, economics. <laughs> That's actually not fair. Australia is supposed to be leading in this sort of stuff. Although <laughs> I did actually notice in, um, in the latest report from the Australian Energy Market Operator, it puts out this quarterly report and we just reported on it this week. Um, uh, the first virtual power plant, which is basically you know, an aggregator of batteries run by a company called Energy Locals in South Australia, um, has been providing FCAS into the market and um, just a modest sum of one megawatt, but still a start. And... Um, if we think that um, large-scale batteries only started um, two years ago and now have a 20% share of that market, then um, I think we can probably expect it to to continue on quite rapidly. In fact, uh, I think between batteries and demand response and probably these VPPs, it's just about one half of the market. Um, I'm fascinated about Poland. I'd, I would like to talk a bit more about Germany and, um, and, and, and Britain, I think, um, particularly in regards to payments to coal-fired generators and capacity markets and things like this. But um, Poland always struck me as a country where Scott Morrison holding a lump of coal could feel quite at home, because I think a lot of the politicians there would <laughs> feel very much um, the same way. Although I do remember going to the climate change conference there in 2000. Jeez, I can't remember now. Was it 2013? Yes, it would have been 2013. And trudging across a um, a very desolate field in the middle of winter, and it was cold and it was icy, and it was a wind turbines and um, this old man in a big 
overcoat came across and he was obviously the operator of the wind farm and the manager and uh, I gave him my card and he looked at it and quite delightfully and said, ah, renew economy. I read that every day. <laughs> so there you go. Um, now, look, where was I? I was just both thinking about renew economy, actually. That's right. Poland, so what are they doing? What are they doing then to actually replace, if, if they're facing problems with coal, what are they going to do? Because they've got wind and solar farms, but it's not exactly the richest place for that sort of technology, I wouldn't have thought. Um, no, that's right. So what are they doing? Um, let me think. Well, uh, PG, it's, it's PG is the biggest utility, and they are 90% coal um, as a part of their generation mix. So if you if you think about PGE as the uh, Polish energy system for a moment as the biggest utility and they are state owned or majority state owned um, what they have done recent mo most recently is bet very large on coal um, bizarrely um, we might not you might not expect that but that's uh, that's the approach they have been taking they are the, definitely the black sheep um, in the European Union um, it's quite skeptical about the direction of um, you know, climate policy, energy policy, uh, in terms of renewables. So they have been um, a rather negative influence, let's say, on that on that trend in Europe, um, opposed to reforms to the carbon market and so on. However, an interesting kind of quote, if you like, from PGE um, at, the, at their first half results, uh, they now acknowledge that uh, we are seeing structurally higher carbon prices in Europe. Um, they said they're learning their lessons with respect to CO2 prices, which they don't expect to fall. Now, th this is kind of, for me, quite disappointing that in a one sense that they have taken a little bit too long to, to acknowledge uh, that the, the, the rules have changed in Europe. Um, but at least they're acknowledging it. Um, so PG have announced some big plans, actually quite ambitious plans um, into solar power. So if I look at what, got the, what they've got coming up there. So at the moment, they've got one megawatt. Um, of solar power, and yet their their ambition is. <coughs> I think I saw that megawatt actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's not surprising. Mighty cold and lonely. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's not entirely surprising, I guess. And I think that their ambition is for one thousand three hundred megawatts in twenty twenty five, and two thousand five hundred and fifty megawatts in two thousand and thirty. These are very recent um, uh, new goals. As I say, but on the back of that structurally higher carbon price, PG is trying to pivot. Uh, so this is very ambitious if you think about what that means annually, you know, like 200, something like that, plus megawatts installed. That's not easy. And the other ambition is offshore wind. So you, you do have offshore wind in, in uh, Poland and the Baltic Sea. The, well, there isn't any, actually, sorry, at the moment. But you do have the wind resource. It's there. And if you see what's happening um, in the North Sea between Britain um, and Germany, um, Poland seeking or hoping to replicate that, I would argue, too slowly. Um, but they do have an ambition for a gigawatt of offshore wind in 2025. This is PGE still, and two and a half gigawatts in 2030. I think that's too slow. Um, mm. But nevertheless, uh, that's uh, that's something that's coming. And Gerard, Gerard, uh, you know, like uh, 2,000 megawatts uh, by 2025. Uh, I mean, we put that on rooftops. Never mind in yeah. Australia in, yeah. in one year. So it doesn't yeah. seem very ambitious to us. But uh, yeah. I, I'm going to steal some of Giles's thunder here and just. Uh, uh, segue onto offshore wind because, uh, and by doing that, we'll eventually end up in the UK where I want to get to. Uh, um, uh, tell, tell us what I mean. The offshore wind story has been the big news story, hasn't it, in Europe? I mean, the way the prices have come down um, and the capacity factors are going up. Uh, can you just uh, talk a little bit about the offshore wind industry and uh, I guess how big is it in terms of gigawatts or something right now and what the prices are and how you think it might go over the next uh, five years or something? 
Yeah, sure. Um, right, well, in terms of cumulative capacity, um, sorry, this is only end of 18. Um, I haven't looked at the latest numbers, but um, as of the end of last year, so you had 8 gigawatts in the UK, biggest in the world, 6 gigawatts in Germany, or just over. Um, and then trailing that, less than 4 in China. I'm sorry, this is um, now 11 months out of date, but anyway. Um, but, you, but, but much more, so certainly UK, Germany, and then to a lesser extent, Denmark, Belgium, Netherlands. Um, Sweden and Finland have all got offshore wind uh, resources now in the ground or on the sea. Um, so that's uh, the story in terms of cumulative capacity. Uh, in terms of uh, generation, contribution to generation, the UK, 8 gigawatts of wind is now 4% of the uh, all generation. So it's a small number, but it's growing rapidly. And of course, you'll, you'll know why that is. That's because of this falling prices. So if you look at st um, um, strike prices, um, let me see, uh, let's see now. Uh, they've fallen from 185, this is US dollars translated into um, $185 per megawatt hour. Um, that was the uh, offshore wind at the Beatrice wind farm due to come online 2019 this year, but uh, agreed some years ago, um, of course. Um, compared with the most recent uh, strike price uh, that I've got here, I think they've actually come down more. This is $47 per megawatt hour. So from 185 uh, commission now uh, to 47 due in 2026, um, that's, that's why this is a growth market. So we've got 8 gigawatts as of the end of last year in the UK. Um, uh, last I looked at the planning pipeline, so this is offshore wind with planning permission. Um, some of it awaiting uh, contracts, some of it um, already with those contracts sealed. I think it's about 10 to 15 gigawatts um, pipeline. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's big and it's getting bigger. The reasons are the strike prices and also, you know, the bigger turbines, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, so the fact that you've got economies of scale there, plus the lower cost of capital. Um, pension funds are very interested in offshore wind. Um, because of the size of these projects, it suits these big chunks of you know, uh, money that are available. Uh, for uh, very stable revenues, you know, reasonable returns, let's say 5 to 10% IOR. Yep, uh, just handing back to Giles, I'll just observe that the other benefit of, uh, of, the, of offshore wind is the capacity factors, I think, get up towards 50%. And the hidden benefit of that is that the uh, balancing costs are, are lower because, you, you, you know, it's operating half the time. Uh, and, and so you, you don't have to do balancing as often. Over to you, Giles. Gerald, I'm just interested in the offshore wind and, and, and finding out more about that. Um, those prices that uh, came in the last auction were pretty low, and I think it points to the fact that um, it's less than half the price of what the new nuclear plant will be when it comes online in the mid-2020s. I think its strike price was £92 in 2012, and I think by the time that's indexed from the moment that was announced so by the time it gets to 2025 and um, maybe starts delivering its energy then and most likely be delayed and costs will go up as well but that'll be about 115 pounds and um, and uh, wind will get in um, in the 40s somewhere um, what future has nuclear got in the UK or other other reasons why they they want to keep it yeah um, yeah that's right so you're talking about the, uh, the three gigawatt uh, Hinkley point C uh, under construction, the EDF um, power plant, uh, which is a, one of the big, you know, the new technology, EPR technology. Um, that's right. It's uh, we certainly predicted this at AIFA that it would be over uh, over budget when it was built, and also it would be delayed. 
Sure enough, um, I think we're looking just very recently, in fact, uh, at the latest cost overrun. I think there's been two to three now, September 2019. They said it would now cost up to £2.9 billion more than thought. Um, that's enough for a power plant. That's just the inflation on the project. Uh, so they're looking at 20, up to £23 billion for that project. Um, I think the, uh, the UK Public Accounts Committee has, count, has, has uh, made some estimates on what the subsidy would cost the, for, the, for the generation, which is £36 billion. Uh, it doesn't seem very uh, cost-effective, uh, to put it mildly. It is, it is, yeah, it, is probably, it must be the most expensive power plant, I think it's safe to say, in the world. Um, no, to put it mildly, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone said it's the most expensive thing that man has built in the world, but um, it probably um, ignores a few other things. Well, it competes with the Australian submarines, uh, Charles, but anyway, let's be... <laughs> That's probably true, too. Um, look, Gerard, I'm, I'm also interested. You wrote about the capacity markets in the UK a year ago for um, Energy Post, and presumably maybe for AIFA as well. But, but tell us a bit more about what the capacity markets are doing there. The capacity markets are entering the lexicon in Australia. There's a bit of a push from certain people to have them replace our energy-only market here. But um, your analysis done um, about a year ago pointed to the fact that um, all they ended up doing was subsidise existing um, coal, gas and nuclear assets only 10% of the um, subsidy um, or the payments went to um, so-called modern assets. Yeah, um, that's right. So my argument has been that on the the capacity market in Britain, um, its ambition was essentially to take, uh, to prepare the UK for a coal phase out. So the the capacity market was discussed, I think, around 2013, 14, and the first, and then the 2014, there was the first auction uh, for delivery of capacity in 2018-19. Um, and um, the idea, as I say, was, um, or, or at least the, the, the motive it was, was explained to, to help Britain prepare for this coal phase-out. Actually, there's been not a single large gas plant uh, built as a result of support under the scheme. Um, 81% of the, uh, the, um, the capacity payments at £2.7 billion has gone to existing generation. Um, so one has to ask, what was the prospect of that existing generation going offline? So if it's only to support existing generation rather than support new build, uh, the idea was to support new build gas uh, to preserve uh, adequacy margins in the UK as coal came off. Um, and uh, you can't see that happening, uh, to be honest. Uh, that's that's uh, the way I see it. The new build generation total is 5% of all of the um, payments that have gone to date. Um, so I don't think it's it's uh, value for money. Um, certainly utilities around 2013 were saying, look, look, watch out for the uh, coal phase out. Uh, we're not going to be building a new gas plant without a capacity market. This was very powerful stuff. As you know, of course, governments are very, uh, to put it mildly, sensitive about the threats of blackouts uh, to their electability. And um, the, But they haven't actually built any gas plants with the capacity market. It's been a big handout as far as I can see. Yeah. Well, look, the threats of blackouts has been a ruse that's been used by the um, in, 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 uh, legacy um, market um, for, for for yonks, and we've seen that in Australia. Look, is there a way to do this properly? I mean, I've heard talk in the past of flexibility markets and mentioned a few times in these podcasts and, and on our website. Um, I notice also that Germany, in trying to manage the exit of its lignite plants, is not really talking about a capacity market to stay on. It's actually talking about a payment to, to, get, to get off. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you can struggle straight 
straddle those two questions if that's possible or if not treat them separately yeah um regarding i mean alternatives i think for me the alternative in the uk is and um, you know many countries if you want to if you are increasing the uh, market share of renewables i think the, the alternative sorry the way to balance that uh, number one i think is is uh, for an energy island like the uk is interconnection uh, we've got fantastic hydro resources, well we don't, but Norway does, um, across the sea, which we can access now through the first interconnection to Norway, which is being built at the moment to the UK. Um, I think that's the way to go. Um, you also got the, the benefit of different time zones, etc. you know, different times of the, uh, the peak. And I think some of the capacity payments more recently have been going to new interconnectors or existing interconnectors, haven't they? Yeah, for um, looking at my little um, uh, slide here, uh, I can see four percent has gone to interconnection. Uh, so yeah, something forty-five percent has gone to to gas though, and twelve percent has gone to coal. Um, so interconnection has only got a small and fifty sixteen percent has gone to nuclear. This is what I'm talking about. Did nuclear need that? I don't think so. Uh, nuclear was going was 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 was, was plowing well along quite happily without the capacity market, but now they've got five hundred million quid. Uh, for nothing really, uh, but anyway. Um, so no, I think interconnection is one way to go. The other way, as you say, Giles, is this idea of flexibility market. So in the UK, we have introduced sharper energy prices um, in the balancing market. Um, effectively, if you're out of balance, uh, then you pay more. And I think that's the way to go. Um, you know, so increasing the maximum, let's say to 10,000 pounds per megawatt hour, whatever it is. Um, I think that's a, that's a good way to go. And making sure that the costs of balancing in that, in that 30 minutes or whatever it is period, um, and you know, live energy demand balancing, but the grid operator is passed on to those who don't um, predict their forecast, uh, the, the don't don't match their forecast demand or supply properly. Um, that so, Gerard, I, I think the offshore wind industry in the UK got going because there was this explicit tender by the government for offshore wind, uh, what we might call a reverse auction. Yeah. Why couldn't you do the same thing for in a targeted way for, for balancing capacity if you wanted a gas plant, if that was what was the desired thing in the UK, rather than having this overall technology neutral but bad outcome kind of uh, auction? Yeah, I completely agree. That could be one way to go. Um, I mean, if, as I say, if you have sharper energy prices in the balancing market, then that's another way to go, uh, simply incentivizing people to do it themselves. So if you're a utility, if you're an energy supplier, rather, if you, you, you know, you uh, incentivize folks to have uh, some kind of demand response or battery storage or do it yourself. Um, so that you're not, you, so that you don't um, miss forecast demand in the, in the way that you have in the past. Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, uh, we've, we've done a good, very, very brief run around Europe. And, and I think it's fair to say that Europe is leading the world in approaching carbon. Uh, and so there's an awful lot of lessons. It hasn't always been successful, but more recently it seems to be much more successful. Uh, they seem to be facing challenges in Germany, at least, of phasing out nuclear and coal at the same time. I can understand why that would make people a bit nervous. Uh, uh, but Gerard, I wanted to. Um, uh, I don't know if there's any other concluding comments you wanted to make, but in in any case, I wanted to say thanks very much for your knowledgeable runaround of what is, uh, I think, an example for all of us. Thanks a lot. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Lovely to join you. Um, I would just say maybe one concluding remark is um, we're working now on a, on a piece comparing electric vehicles in Norway and Australia. As you know, Norway has been a little bit um, generous to the electric vehicle market there, but they have a huge success. And I am very curious about why um, you, how the Australians might be able to cash in on their cheap solar power to charge EVs, but that's something that's forthcoming. 
Oh, and Gerard, I, I think it's true, isn't it? Well, at least I, I think it's true, which doesn't necessarily make it true, that uh, Norway's been so successful in electric vehicles. Well, one reason is because of the very simple things like uh, free parking and stuff like that, uh, which I've long urged is something the New South Wales or state governments could adopt in our capital cities uh, because it provides a very low-cost incentive uh, to get the penetration started. That's right. Yeah, basically you've got people driving quite long distances across bridges, along fields, and that kind of thing. So any tolls associated with ferries and bridges are, are exempt for EVs. That's one way they've done it. They've also eliminated VAT on EVs. Uh, there are some penalties for combustion cars, uh, which may not go down so well in other countries. So that's what I meant about perhaps the, um, the, the that's not so transferable. But yes, you're right. A lot of it is just exemptions on roll tax taxes and tolls, and uh, it's it's working amazingly well. So. Well, I'm going to be fascinated to see that um, to see that um, analysis, Gerard. And um, yes, um, a, a comparison between Norway and um, Australia and EVs doesn't uh, seems about as fair as sort of comparing um, um, Australia and Norway in cricket terms, but um, <laughs> but the other way around. <laughs> look, David. Hey, um, um, we'll just come back and thank um, Gerard finally. But look, just a quick run over some of the things that we should be looking at, and our listeners should be looking at. Um, you've done, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, a very interesting summary of some of the issues being raised in the um, Energy Security Board's uh, review of the national electricity market, and. You make the uh, you make the point, and I think we've heard this from Gerard about Europe. Is that look, if the rules don't actually sort of consider carbon, then what's the point? And um, I, you know, I was talking to someone actually um, a while ago, sort of who was involved in putting together the national electricity um, um, rules in, together in the first place um, at tw- more than twenty years ago, and um, environment was in there, and then all of a sudden environment wasn't in there, and. Um, We've been running a market with no regard to the environment, making decisions with no regard to the environment ever since, and um, hasn't done us any favours. No, I, I think that's right. Uh, and uh, my, I think my point is that it just won't work without a carbon objective in there, because in the end, uh, there is going to be a carbon policy, whether it's explicit or implicit or whatever, and it's going to get tighter and tighter the way the rest of the world is gradually going. And uh, if the uh, if you look at Europe, they had to have to go at the carbon price three or four times, and you do need the stability reserve to make it work. But I can look at California, where their integrated resource plan, uh, which I love looking at, uh, starts with the carbon objective and then works out the effectively the low cost generation way way to supply that as it tightens up. And so you, all these other things, you know, like uh, whether you have a capacity market, a day ahead market, uh, extra markets for uh, uh, ancillary services, uh, all, all are putting the uh, cart before the horse, which is, and, and the horse is that uh, here we need to get a carbon objective in it and uh, do a bit of planning and then set the markets up to accomplish the appropriate national objective. At least that's the way I think it. And by the way, Giles, this whole process is not helped by what is effectively a turf war between the Energy Security Board and the AMC, where the AMC is basically pissed off. You won't hear them say this, that the Energy Security Board is trying to set policy. And so the AMC is running around making rules like Kogarty, uh, hoping to basically uh, uh, chop the uh, ESB off at the knees. And so that's pretty dysfunctional for everyone as well. 
Yes, it seems that John Pierce, the chairman of the AMC, is trying to make his mark um, before his expected departure next year. And um, this week he's also put out a decision on marginal loss factors. He doesn't want to change that because he wants to persist with his design of sort of dynamic and locational sort of locational factors in uh, pricing in the Kagati process. Everybody seems to be against that. All the established utilities are against it. All the renewable developers are quite apoplectic about it. And it turns out even AEMO's against it because it's put in its submission saying, well, bugger if we know how um, this is going to work. That wasn't their exact words, but it's effectively the same. So we've got this sort of contest between AEMO and EMC. And um, so, so locational um, pricing might be a nice thing to have if everything else was working well. But at the moment, it's just a massive cost-inducing distraction. Another thing that came through this review is just how many rule changes, which will be no surprise to anyone, are going on. And not only have you got to do with all these real rule changes, and there are like 20 or 30 of them all going on at once. Some are more important than others, like five-minute settlement. But you've also all the IT costs and system costs, which are going to be very expensive for a lot of people, and the learning curves. Not only have you got that, you've got the changes in the physical market, which really are where things have to come first. We have to build the replace the coal generators. We have to build the new transmission. These are the basic uh, goals that, you know, everything else is just distributed distraction from that. The people that succeed, in my experience, are those that focus on the absolute prime imperatives and put the blinkers on, uh, like you do, Giles, when you're writing an article, and, you know, and just <laughs> get it you done, you know, and don't, don't look up until it's done. <laughs> Um, look, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and and I think that's one of the major problems of the Kagati process, saying, look, it might be all, all very good in academic theory, but it doesn't actually solve the problems of getting um, the um, delayed transmission built. Now, look, on a happier note, let's just quickly rub off on the, or sign off with the um, quarterly energy dynamics mentioned in the conversation with Gerard. Some really fascinating milestones here. We've had um, negative prices at um, um, record levels in South Australia, in Queensland and Western Australia. Um, record output of wind and record output of solar, record output of wind and solar, um, record lows in brown and black coal generation, another fall in emissions, um, falling in prices. You actually have a look at some of those things in the quarterly dynamics report and you're thinking, by crikey, we're actually making progress. And that's only to the end of September. I can uh, just point out that it's accelerated in October in the early part of November um, but uh, but we do still have to get through this March quarter coming up this year and uh, particularly in Victoria, uh, whilst I think Victoria is going to have a surplus uh, in, in 18 months or two years' time, uh, they do still have to keep an eye on things this coming, coming March quarter. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, once again, um, Gerard, thank you for joining us. Um, just a quick, um, just a quick uh, question for you before you go. I'm presuming you're still there. Yep. Um, do you have many negative prices in, um, in, in, in Europe? Is that somewhere that Australia can lead the world in? Yeah, no, that's uh, it's an important one. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the integration of renewables and, and uh, negative pricing is definitely important. It's a great way to you know incentivize people to uh, prepare better for surpluses. You know, if you're not going to make money and and so on then well you could that's a good one for energy storage obviously uh it's incentivizing yeah. storage to to uh to take care of those wind services so that's the other good challenge step. for policy i forgot to mention it's a way to give this you know we all know solar and wind wind right now but maybe solar in the future is the lowest cost form of bulk energy and i mentioned this on the podcast last week but the policy has to get, be think about how we can develop more solar and still enable the solar 
uh, developers to get a return on capital when there's going to be an excess of it at lunchtime. And, you know, storage is the answer. And so, but I mean, we need a policy, some planning, some thinking about it. This is the way it's going to be. How can we make it happen as effectively as possible? It makes me think, actually, David, that instead of framing the discussion as what happens when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, maybe we should be asking ourselves, what do we do when the sun does shine and the wind does blow? And I guess the answer is to store it. So there you go. There you go. That, that's it. Exactly. Oh, well, we'd better <laughs> sign off before, uh, before everyone's yeah, phone runs out of battery with this a tremendous, exciting podcast. Uh, okay, Ger- um, okay, thanks, David. Gerard, thank you very much thank for joining you. us. Pleasure. Really pleasure. I enjoy it. And thank you very much to our sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and to Evergen. We really appreciate your ongoing support. Uh, we encourage our consumers to, our listeners to um, have a look at their products. Uh, we encourage everyone to give us good feedback on your podcast, particularly on the Apple um, uh, platform. If you can, give us a review and that um, extends our reach. And uh, we'll be back again this time next week. We hope we will. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.